It's Friday, January 5th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I think a point that has been lost over the past few weeks needs to be made clear. That is my job today. Here is the point. The Houthis suck. They suck. Why do I say this? Well, why do I have to say this? I never thought there'd be a lot of pro-Houthi sentiment out there, but we're hearing some in the form of delightful rhyming at a New York protest, either sponsored by or at least publicized by the website for the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Yemen, Yemen, make us proud. Turn another ship around. No, no. Turning the ships around, i.e. sinking them, are the Houthis. The Houthis, possibly the Houthis. No one likes the Houthis. The Houthis are terrorists. They use child soldiers. They kidnap 12-year-olds and force them to fight. They sometimes drop bombs onto little kids. They overthrew an elected government. Not a good government by Jeffersonian standards, but better than whatever Iran-aligned version of jihad the Houthis brought with them. They plant IEDs that kill civilians. Not by accident. That's the point of the IEDs. This is why I say... The Houthis suck. Now, we have 100,000 Yemenis in New York City. Most of them own a bodega. So I went to my local guy. I was buying a seltzer and one of those big vacuum-wrapped Fig Newton things that they sell. Started talking about the Houthis, mainly about pronunciation. Hey, by the way, I said, do you say the Houthis or the Houthis? Remember, this was a point of contention on the show. And he was like, what? And I said, the Houthis or would you say the Houthis? And he said, and this was interesting, I don't hear the difference. And I said, who tees or who thees? And he looked at me confused. And I said, okay, how do you say it? And he said, the hootthees. So it was a little bit of a t and a little bit of th. I'm really veering from the point. It's not if it's the hooties, the hoothies, or the hootthees. It's that as the guy said to me, why are you talking about the hootthees? The hootthees suck. That's right. The Houthis suck. And this whole chant, turn another ship around. We're talking about firing at commercial vessels that have barely any connection to Israel. Norwegian vessels with Liberian crews. And so they have to take 1,000, 3,000 miles extra, thus burning fossil fuels, we should note, socialists and liberationists, thus burning fossil fuels, raising everyone's cost, I'm really not doing anything to help your side in the war, the Houthis. I guess it's just so attractive to have a rhyme available. How could you not say it? And this is my diagnosis of what's really hurting Israel in the war. Yeah, it's all the pictures of the suffering Palestinians, but it's also the lack of really good chants. You never hear an Israeli doing a chant because they're trying to do what they do with a little less attention. I mean, what would that be? My preschool was Montessori. We deny killing Alarori. It doesn't make sense, is my point. But my main point, and please let us not take our eyes off the ball of this point, the Houthis suck. On the show today, Joe Biden says he's running to save democracy. Can he? Almost certainly not. 
But I'll tell you in the spiel why that's still a pretty good selling point for him. And in a programming note, our conversation about the Golden Globes has been postponed. My guest wanted to talk about some acting award. I was interested in what Senator Bob Menendez got from the Qataris. We regret the error. And now, Michael McCambridge is a football writer and historian, an expert, but football's not his only area of expertise. He will join me to discuss his latest book, it is a rollicking tome, orange too, the big time, how the 1970s transformed sports in America, and we will talk all about the decade that put the pro in pro sports. Michael McCambridge up next. Details of how small-time pro sports were in the 1970s are kind of delightful. It almost reminds me of when you hear about real estate prices in a very expensive neighborhood now, and someone says, oh yeah, I could have had that house for $50,000 in 1975, and now it's worth $2.5 million. I'll give you one example. The NBA. You know the NBA with all its money and glitz and showmanship. Well, in the 1970s, the announcer for the Chicago Bulls, yes, the the team that Michael Jordan would come to play for, used to say, would everyone in our arena please rise and honor the national anthem? And then he would press play on a tinny tape recorder next to him, and that was how the show would start. It's just one of the details in a new book, The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America by Michael McCambridge. Michael McCambridge, welcome to The Gist. Good to be with you, Mike. Let's do some level setting. Now the NFL is so dominant, each team gets $320 million a year from its TV contracts, just per year, just for existing and being part of a TV show. When your book starts in the beginning of the 1970s, how much was each team getting from TV? Oh, just a few million. And I think that there's something about the balance of power that has shifted between football owners and the media when you are aware of something like for the Patriots games, the Boston Patriots owner, Billy Sullivan, used to bring the tickets and the parking pass into the Boston Globe Sports Department and drop them off with the sports editor. I don't believe Robert Kraft still does that with the Boston Globe. No, probably not. And by the way, I hate to start off with a correction, but it was 1.25 million in 1970. Yeah. It wasn't even a few million. Yeah. What else? Give me give us some other great details of how small time these huge operations were when the book starts. I think you have to remember that sports at least at the beginning of the 70s, was still barely a profession. You know, uh, Oscar Robertson, great player, his pregame meal uh, in the arena in Milwaukee was he would send the ball boy out um, with a few dollars, and the ball boy would come back with two hot dogs and a Coke. And that was that was Oscar Robertson's training table. Um, the New Orleans Saints, who are now, a, a you know, an actual competent professional football franchise, once hired as their general manager in the early 70s, an astronaut, Dick Gordon, who had no experience in football whatsoever, but had been associated with these successful Apollo missions. So why could he not run a football team? That was that was sort of the mindset. And, and I think it was a time that sports still wasn't quite sure exactly what it was. Yeah. And the reason I wrote this book is because I think during the 70s, sports found out. 
and yeah. sports fans found out. And by the end of the decade, you could start to see the broad contours of what sports is today, which is really the last significant piece of common ground in our increasingly balkanized culture. Yes, it is. It is uh, the NFL, especially, is our dominant cultural force. And even as the World Series are waning, the Olympics are pretty much the one thing that still gets us around the water cooler. Although we don't have water coolers, we don't even have to go into the office. (laughs) But speaking of the training table, that was uh, one great thing about the book is you have just different rivulets about how hairstyles changed and how (laughs) pants changed. There's a section about the World Football League, which was like the ABA to the (laughs) NFL, where Larry Zonka wrote a strongly worded letter saying, we shall not be made to wear clown pants. (laughs) What was that? (laughs) The WFL in its second year had this idea of to make the game easier to follow, to color code team players' pants based on their position. So offensive linemen would wear one color, receivers would wear another color, backs would wear another color, linebackers would wear another color. The idea sounds almost plausible in theory, but if you've seen any films, and and you can actually find them on YouTube, it really is like watching a football game on LSD. And, (laughs) And the pants beyond that were ridiculous looking. I mean, it looked like something... Uh, a court jester would wear in some off-Broadway play. And so as the league was moving ahead and considering this, Zonka and Jim Kick and Paul Warfield, who defected to the WFL from the Dolphins, sent a telegram indeed to the league office that said, in its entirety, will not wear clown-like pants. And, (laughs) you know, in fairness, the WFL wasn't the only one to go off on a wild hair. Um, Well, all these these rival leagues, a part of it was to always change the color of the ball or the pants, or in the case of uh, the Colorado caribou of soccer, to have a leather fringe on the front of their jersey. (laughs) Knowing how, how hard and how long soccer players run, you can imagine what it would be like to play in 95 degree heat with this big strip of leather running across your jersey <laughs> and yeah the, the you know the the world hockey association had the blue puck the aba um famously and still memorably had the red white and blue basketball the wfl had a football colored butterscotch just like your mom's fondue pot it was it was the 70s yeah and um the reason I even brought up or delighted in the uh, in the Oscar Robertson hot dog story is you have details about the prevalence of smoking in professional sports in the 1970s. I just love that. Yeah, you know, there's that, there's that great meme that has kind of found a second life of Len Dawson at halftime of the Super Bowl with a with a lung dart and a fresca, just kind of refreshing <laughs> himself between halves. Um, but it was still very prevalent. I can remember. And I mentioned this in the book, even in the late 70s, Ron Johnson, the rookie uh, defensive back for the Steelers, is drafted and he's joining the Steelers. And Johnson was part of this first generation of athletes who were worried about nutrition, trained on Nautilus, very, you know, very modest drinker. And he shows up to the Three Rivers Stadium locker room and there are ashtrays welded um, on the floor next to each locker. And he's just amazed. And the equipment manager takes him aside and says, Ron, you got to understand something. These are grown men. And there were still a lot of grown men who were smoking cigarettes in the NFL and NBA well into the 70s. 
Yeah, well, I remember Sports Illustrated did a preview of uh, one post-Dream Team uh, Olympics basketball tournament, and they said the Serbs, Vlade Divac, oh, yeah. uh, and others, they, you know, they have a good shot, but they can't stop smoking in the, <laughs> right. in the locker room. It's just so 70s. Now, other than just delighting in some of the ephemera, I think the biggest through line was probably the explosion of women's sports. Billie Jean King, Title Nine, and it interacted with a lot of the other trends and women's lib and the ERA of the 70s, as did many of the things um, that went on with professional sports league. It was a reflection of the culture, but I think especially and acutely with women's sports. Could it have happened? Could women's sports have grown as it did during any prior decade? Um, no, and I think that you know we we sort of cite Title Nine today which last year had its 50th anniversary as like the, the be all end all panacea. But mm -hmm. I think um, one of the things I learned in reporting on this book, and I hope that comes through in the story is that there were other factors as well. Um, one of them to your point was the trailblazing Billie Jean King, who in addition to winning one of the most pressurized sports contests imaginable, beating Bobby Riggs in the battle of the sexes in 1973, also launched the Women's Sports Foundation, which is still active, launched the first serious sports magazine about, about women's athletics, women's sports, helped launch the World Team Tennis concept, which had men and women on the same team competing together, um, started a softball league in her spare time. I don't think Billie Jean King slept more than four hours any night during the decade, from, from what <laughs> I can tell. But also... You know, the, the, the story that, that comes through for me is in 1969, this group of women physical educators approached the NCAA and said, it is time. Will you please sponsor championships in women's sports? And the NCAA, which at the time was still a men's only organization, had no interest in doing it. So the women formed their own college athletic governance organization, the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, and they fought gamely throughout the 70s at a time when the NCAA was opposed to Title IX to establishing this infrastructure of women's sports, and that laid the foundation for everything that followed. Yeah, I had never heard of the uh, AI... AW, mm -hmm. right? And you make a good case that when the NCAA pretty much forces or accepts the reality that they'll have to have um, a somewhat, somewhat equal women's sports division, though it's now seen as a triumph, what it really did was bulldoze and plow over these real revolutionaries who were doing it without the okay or the say-so of what we may now call the patriarchy. And it was, uh, it was poignant and instructive to learn that. Yeah. And I think the irony, as I mentioned in the end of the book, is these men who were fighting Title IX and fighting the AIAW, they loved sports too. They wanted sports to be as big as possible. And what they couldn't see out of their limited perspective is that if they want sports to grow as big as it has, they needed women. They needed women athletes, women coaches, women administrators, and women sports fans. Um, you know, one of the things that becomes clear if you step back and look at this whole decade is the success of Monday Night Football in 1970, primetime network television, which was foreign ground for sports, 
that was predicated on the NFL and Rune Arledge at ABC's ability to attract casual fans, to attract women, to get women into the tent of sports and see that it wasn't just men running into each other, that there were personalities, there were conflicts. There was this narrative arc to be followed over the course of a season. And Arledge did that marvelously. And today, it is not a coincidence, 40% of the NFL's audience is female. That is a big change. You know, so what you lay out is there's a sort of flywheel where people are interested in sports. Americans always had an interest in sports and Americans are capitalist. And then there is the issue of labor rights. So as the players get more labor rights, they make more money or maybe it's as they make more money, they're able to assert more labor rights. And as there's more money at stake, the TV networks realize that they could leverage people's attention. So it's attention it's um, visibility, it's the athletes becoming interesting people who are allowed to express themselves. And like I say, it feeds on itself. So I want to ask about some of the labor practices of the 70s. Was there something about labor law that allowed all this organization? Or maybe it was just that it was in an era of pre-anti-labor law, like we see in many Southern states and other states today. Yeah. I mean, it it, it was kind of a Neanderthal era when you think back on it, in which um, in all the major sports, players were essentially indentured servants, um, susceptible to the reserve rule or some variation on it. Um, you know, in the NFL, you could theoretically sign a free agent, but the compensation that was awarded by the league was so prohibitive and punitive that nobody wanted to sign a free agent. So the reserve clause was essentially in place there. And you know, one of the things that when you step back and look at this big picture, you start seeing things together that you wouldn't see individually. For me, I knew about Kirk Flood. You know, it's one of the first things you, you right. learn. The St. Louis Cardinals yeah. player. When you're understanding sports and labor, you learn about Kirk Flood. I also remember John Mackey filing a lawsuit against the NFL, the great Colts Baltimore tight end. Colts player, right. And, and these are guys who wanted essentially their freedom, freedom to pursue their uh, trade. And Oscar Robertson did the very same thing in basketball with the Milwaukee Bucks. And it occurred to me early on in the reporting, you know, it can't be a coincidence that all three of these guys who were all-stars, who risked mm-hmm. their careers for free agency, were all African-American. And I asked the uh, Steelers lineman Joe Green about that. And he thought about it for a minute and he said, you know, I I think black players in the 70s were probably more aware of any issues that revolved around freedom and autonomy. And they were willing to take risks that a lot of the white players wouldn't. And so you get all three of these guys going to the mat. Flood ultimately loses his case. But later on, Marvin Miller and the Players Association get the decision that they want from the arbitrator, Peter Seitz. And that, in the mid-70s, becomes the dawn of free agency. It would be a while before it would come to the NBA, and it would be nearly two decades before it would come to the NFL. But I think it's clear that once free agency came to baseball, it was coming. It was just a matter of time. 
Yeah, and free agency, you know, the the worry, well, I don't even know if the people who ran the teams had a legitimate worry. They just read rather depressed salary levels. But the worry was once players get their own autonomy and then become the stars, it will erode the appeal of the sport overall because the brands are the teams. And actually the opposite happened. Yeah. People got very interested in individual players, and that's what brought all these leagues to the stratosphere, right? It wasn't that the Chicago Bulls with their tinny tape-recorded... Uh, Uh, national anthem were so great. It's that Michael Jordan played for the Bulls. However, and this comes up a few times, at least in my mind, there are pendulums. And it seems that now when we're in the uh, player empowerment era, it's sometimes called that there's the only agency in the NBA, for instance, is free agency. And you have player after player just kind of shutting down and being a bad teammate and refusing to play unless he gets into the good situation, which always sours immediately. I'm thinking of James Harden and others. So do you buy that? I mean, maybe in the 1980s, there was talk of the pendulum has swung. But in 2023, do you think, especially with the NBA, maybe we could talk about some other leagues, that the agency of the players is, in fact, eroding somewhat the popularity of the game? I'm not entirely convinced on that. I know the league has has implemented some rules in this newest CBA that are designed to mitigate against that. I do think there is a structural issue here, which is one great player on an NFL team or one great player on a Major League Baseball team, as Shohei Otani can attest, does not instantly make you a contender, whereas one great player on a bad NBA team can literally overnight make you a good NBA team. We saw it with LeBron James 20 years ago. We're seeing it with Wemby in San Antonio today. I mean, I'm not saying they're going to go to the playoffs or anything, but suddenly they are a competitive team because of one guy. So I do think there's more leverage there just because of the the structure of the game. The real success stories of the era were mostly team sports. I mean, golf, you have uh, Jack Nicholas doing he's on the cover of the book and ollie's on the cover of the book i don't know if you could maybe figure out if golf is much more popular i know they make a lot more money than they did in the 70s boxing has certainly declined but it seems like mostly a rise and explosion of team sports and some of the sports that were popular then i'm thinking of horse racing have really declined in popularity so what was it about team sports that made the big time rather than you know wrestling or track and field well, wrestling is fake would be one thing, but um, no. In a, no, I'm in, I'm in actual amateur <laughs> right. wrestling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in, I think the larger truth is, and Billie Jean King, to her credit, recognized this when she was launching World Team Tennis. Americans respond to team sports, and it's not just because they respond to teams more than individuals. It's because team sports are involved in a season. There is this serial drama that of a season beginning and the personalities emerging, the contenders emerging, and then coming to a conclusion. And so there are things you can plug into day after day, week after week. Monday Night Football was just so ahead of its time in underscoring those themes. And you can't do the same with individual sports. I mean, take horse racing. Mm-hmm. Everybody watches the Kentucky Derby, not as many people as used to. If that same horse doesn't win the Preakness, most American sports fans are not going to watch another horse race until the first Saturday the next May. Same thing with golf, and it's even more attenuated now with the whole PGA LIV thing. But 
Do you really care about the Doral Open? Do you really care about anything besides the four majors? And I think that's one of the things that the Olympics still faces today. We have seen great performances in the Olympics, but did you ever watch Michael Phelps race in a non-Olympic event? You know, so team sports have seasons and themes and rhythms, and you can follow what is your team going to do? Who did they draft? Who did they sign? These things that plug us in 12 months out of the year and the individual sports, I think, suffer in comparison. We are listening to my conversation with Michael McCambridge about his new book, The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America. It's a big book. It's a fun book. The conversation was big and fun, too. How big? Well, we're going to have more of it for Pesca Plus subscribers. There you will hear why Major League Baseball fell drastically behind the NFL. Talk about women's pro sports. What the hell's going on with the NHL? And we will ponder the future of pro sports, pickleball v. volleyball. Pesca Plus subscribers will get all these answers. Don't you want to be a Pesca Plus subscriber? Of course you do. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com and join us there. And now the spiel. Joe Biden went to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania today to speak to the lessons born of that hollowed place. The concept that was being fought over. In the Revolutionary War, which Biden says he is fighting for today, more shoes in winter. Wait, no, it was a different fundamental precept linking George to Joe. It was democracy, all about democracy. As we begin this election year, we must be clear, democracy is on the ballot. Your freedom is on the ballot. Yes, we'll be voting on many issues, on the freedom to vote and have your vote counted, on the freedom of choice, the freedom to have a fair shot, the freedom from fear, (coughs) and we'll debate and disagree. Without democracy, no progress is possible. Think about it. Biden has a democracy agenda. In fact, he is framing the 2024 election as no less than a battle for democracy itself. He is trying to beat Donald Trump in the election in order to save democracy. The way he will save democracy is by beating Donald Trump in the election. That is it. That's the plan. You could say that's not a very complex plan, but you know, It is a good plan, good defined as, what's the alternative if the plan fails? In fact, I suggest that as an overall motto. Hope and change, I'm with her, make America great again. Nah, Joe Biden, consider the alternative. Biden's plan to save democracy is like the lighting company's plan to service the energy grid. It will still be vulnerable, poorly connected, inefficient, and stocked with decades-old power plants and transformers. Nothing's going to change all that, but the alternative is a blackout. So we could say that if the Biden plan goes wrong, democracy will very likely suffer. So I am on board with his plan to save democracy. One could say, well, what about all the other inadequacies of our democracy? And that would be a good point. And while beating Trump won't shore up the frailties of our system, losing to him will almost certainly explode them. Our democracy is an old lady at the top of the stairs. Maybe a hard push won't dislodge her. Maybe she'll survive the fall and only break a hip. And also, yeah, if she's not shoved, she is still rickety and smells like Ben Gay. But avoiding the shove, doing whatever you can to avoid the shove, is better than having her receive it. 
I picture the neighbor boy from Toy Story 1 as the culprit delivering the shove in this scenario. Now you could say, all right, okay, okay. But what did Joe Biden do in his first three, by the time of the election, his first four years in office? Didn't he and the Democrats fail to pass H.R. 1, the For the People Act? They did. They did fail to pass that because of a Republican veto. And couldn't you say, well, what about the Freedom to Vote Act, which was a watered-down version of the For the People Act? That one even had Joe Manchin aboard, and that failed too. And you could further say, why should we think Joe Biden's second term will be more successful in strengthening democracy than whatever he did in the first? And the answer will be, it probably won't. But if he doesn't beat Donald Trump, democracy will not only not be strengthened, it will be, what's the phrase? Ah, yes, fucked in the ear. It literally would be the opposite of democracy if one man could save democracy. But Joe Biden makes the decent case that we're not talking about one man. We're talking about two men. And in this case, the other man is much worse when it comes to democracy. Because of Donald Trump's lies, they died because these lies brought a mob to Washington. He promised it would be wild, and it was. He told the crowd to fight like hell, and all hell was unleashed. He promised he would right them. Write them. Everything they did, he would be side by side with them. Then, as usual, he left the dirty work to others. Of course, it's true. Donald Trump's biggest, most glaring democracy-destroying initiative was denying the results of the last election. And if Donald Trump wins this election, that won't come into play. But I kind of don't trust him on the rest of the stuff either. What about accepting the results of other people's elections or abiding by court orders in general or following any rules ever. Maybe he'll get too distracted or hire incompetence or not work hard enough to do the heavy lifting of actually destroying or seriously degrading democracy. It's all possible. But even if he doesn't destroy it, what good will come from giving him the chance to try? Joe Biden is correct to point out that if you're worried about any of the things, he's your fella. He is the person to, at least for a few years, stand in the breach, and then, with none of the underlying vulnerabilities addressed, it will fall to the next set of candidates, either to play by the rules or to take the lesson that the rules are eminently exploitable. And once more, we will consider a candidate where the pitch is that he or she is now the only hope of forestalling a maniac from exploiting our dilapidated, antiquated system. So here's the hope. Here's the pitch. Joe Biden. From 2025 through 2028, having won via the undemocratic institution of the Electoral College, presiding over the next inevitable failure legislatively due to the undemocratic institution of the filibuster, will not get much done. To be realistic, it's excessively optimistic to think that anything but the teeny tiniest strengthening of democracy could ever take place if, over the next term, Joe Biden even gets the chance to try. He'll almost certainly fail. I can think of no other campaign promise or policy plank that is more likely to disappoint while, and keep this other part in your mind, while simultaneously being an honest-to-goodness, real, bona fide justification for a candidate's election. In fact, he's convinced me. And that's the plan. It's actually a good plan. It's the best we could hope for. And it's better than the alternative, who has repeatedly told all of us that he's your retribution against that annoying old lady at the top of the stairs. 
That's it for today's show. Corey Wara is strengthening our show as the GIST producer. And Joel Patterson is a bulwark against the vicissitudes of the anti-GIST senior producer position. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions and at Valley Forge. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the GIST. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>